Southeast Radio's Business Matters with Carl Fitzpatrick. Well, my final guest this morning, Alex Pang, believes that employers have nothing to lose and only time to gain by introducing a four-day working week. His book, Shorter, Work Better, Smarter and Less, promotes this very concept. Alex, you are the founder of Strategy and Rest, a consultancy firm which helps companies to harness the power of rest to shorten the workday. So fundamentally, how do you believe that people can work less but actually get more done? Thanks for having me. Great to be with you. Well, there are studies that show that we've actually become quite a bit more productive in the last 20 or so years, thanks to you know new technologies, the internet, and so forth. The problem is that we have also become in our offices, especially open plan offices, um, a lot more distracted. And so when you add up meetings, multitasking, um, bad processes, there are estimates that people waste up to two hours of productive time every single day. So basically, the four-day week is already here. It's just buried under this rubble of like bad management and sort of Facebook checking and interruptions. So if you can clear that away, you can actually go a long way getting to do five days worth of work in four days. Now, you mentioned earlier about the fact that although we're working five days a week, currently we're really only effective four days of the week because of the land of mass distraction that we're living in. But many employers may think that in a situation where we reduce from five days to four days, it's going to be incredibly difficult to ensure that you gain up to 100% effectiveness during that period. If you identify your key productivity metrics, your KPIs, as they call it in the industry, you know, in advance, you keep an eye on those. It becomes possible to, you know, basically be certain that you're on the right path to know if you need to make course corrections. And so, you know, you are, and that helps give everybody confidence that um, this actually is working. So, you know, it's not, it's not something that just kind of happens magically, right? You take away one day a week and people just kind of automatically be more productive. You've got to be thoughtful and mindful about it. You have to look at how you work and how you can work better. But it is eminently doable in all kinds of contexts. Now, a key feature of your writings is concerned with the importance of deliberate rest. Essentially, how should deliberate rest be factored into a busy working day? Right. You know, when you look at the lives of some of history's most prolific and creative people, one of the things you see is that they worked in these bursts of several hours, generally about four or five hours of really hard work, followed by periods that look totally unproductive, right? You're taking long walks, working in the garden. But in fact, that's a period where their subconscious minds were able to kind of take on ideas and turn over concepts to work on problems that they hadn't been able to solve. And by layering these periods of deliberate rest and sort of in-between periods of work, they actually were able to be more creative and more productive than if they had kind of put the nose to the grindstone for long, you know, for 12 hours a day. And so figuring out how to create schedules of that sort is one of the important things that you can do both personally if you're working at home, but also it's an incredibly powerful thing 
that companies can do together to give everybody more time and help them be more productive. And do you think that your realisation about the need for deliberate rest was born out of your own experience? Oh, absolutely. You know, um, the, you know I, I have worked as a technology forecaster and consultant in Silicon Valley for close to 20 years. And I went through my own period of burnout, of being, you know, always one project behind, a feeling like, you know, this ought to be great work, but I just can't really sort of get into it the way that I used to. And I had a chance to sort of take a break and kind of step back. And it was in those few months that I discovered that I was being incredibly creative and productive, but I didn't feel the kind of constant time pressure that is just part of life here. And it started me thinking and put me on the path to realize the importance of rest generally and deliberate rest in particular in helping us do the kinds of work that we want to do, both as, in, you know, as individuals, but also as organizations and as economies. Now, there is an argument that through advancements in technology, we've almost become slaves to our devices, thus making it harder to switch off. In Ireland at present, we are set to introduce guidelines which support the right to switch off. But in reality, how do we overcome the compulsion to access work after hours and to instead achieve the rest that we need? A big component of this that is social or normative, right? We're online because other people are online, because we need to check our mail to see if there is a message from the boss. And once it's clear that you have rules that say that you know, that uh, people, you know, you're not going to get business mail after X o'clock. Um, that goes a long way to helping us move past this stage where we are constantly interacting with our phones because we have no choice. And what if we can begin to develop a better, healthier relationship in which we are in charge of our devices rather than the other way around. And Alex, I know that you're also an advocate for deep play. What is deep play and what benefits can it deliver for both employers and employees? Right. So deep play is really serious hobbies that um, often are you know, time-consuming or sometimes even physically dangerous, but which very busy, very productive people engage in anyway. And the thing about deep play is that, you know, very often people who are super you know, super obsessed with their work, who are very ambitious, have trouble switching off. And one of the things about these serious hobbies is that it gives them a, it, it is something that is almost as compelling and competitive with their work so that it, it, it affords them sort of a break from the job. At the same time, a good hobby has some of the things, some of the rewards that maybe you like about your job. Right. But in, you know, it's the same kind of mental satisfaction of solving problems or helping other people, but in a very different kind of context, maybe with sort of lower stakes or achievable you know, very quickly rather than over a long period. And so the virtue of that is that it helps us remind ourselves of what we love best about our work even when it gives us a break from it. And I think this is good for employers because deep play is one of these things that allows us to recharge the mental and physical batteries that we spend working and helps us have longer, more sustainable careers. 
In your latest book, Shorter, you share the stories of entrepreneurs and corporate leaders from all over the world who have effectively reduced the working week without compromising productivity. Essentially, how did they achieve this? They do a few common things. And the, first of all, um, they make meetings a lot shorter so that you know hour-long weekly meeting becomes like a five-minute stand-up. And you can save a dramatic amount of time that way. Another thing that they do is they become a, they're a lot more thoughtful about how they use technologies. So whether that means turning off the Slack channel for certain parts of the day, giving people permission to ignore email, or using technologies to automate kind of low-level, less interesting tasks so people have more time and energy for the creative stuff. And then the last big thing that they do is they redesign the workday itself to give people periods of uninterrupted deep time where they can focus on their most important stuff. Provide us with some detail in relation to how they achieve success in relation to the implementation of that. Actually, one of my favorite examples is a traditional Japanese inn in Japan. Not the kind of place that you would imagine as a great innovator, but you know, they discovered, like most companies, that they had periods of the week that were sort of in which they did a lot less business than others, and which, if they took off, really would, have, would mean they'd lost a little bit of money, but they made up for that loss in um, sort of in other ways. One of the moving to a four-day week for them meant that they had more time for professional development, for sort of work, for improving other services, and over the course of several years, um, they saw their revenues more than double, and they were also able to develop new offerings with things like you know wedding services and actually selling the software that they had developed in house to manage the inn. And these kinds of, and there are in my book, you know, dozens of these kinds of stories of small companies discovering that they're able to, that they unlock kind of creative potential and, and sort of new business opportunities um, by working less and, sort of, and being more creative with the time that, sort of, uh, that, they, do, that they do spend in the office. In those particular businesses where they introduced a four-day working week, did they stick with the existing five-day business hours? There's a mix. So some of them will just cut one day out of the out of the work week. Very often a Friday for sort of uh, for obvious reasons. Um, some will go to uh, working six hours a day for five days a week, and then in other cases there is. You know, sort of, uh, there is a mix where people, where different people will have different shifts working, mon- let's say, Monday through Thursday or Tuesday through Friday. It really depends on the rhythm of your business and what your customers expect. And what would you say to employers that are skeptical that might think that this is a slippery slope? That if, for instance, they consent to the working week reducing from five days to four days, then what's to stop in four or five or ten years' time? for the request to come in and that movement to come in towards a three-day working week? If you can be just as productive and profitable in four days as you are in five, why not do it? And then if you can be as profitable and productive in three days as you are in four, then that, you know, then, or, uh, then 
why not, you know, why not think seriously about that as well? You have nothing to lose and only time to gain. And Alex, from your research into this particular area, what were the challenges that companies needed to overcome? Mm-hmm. I think some, you know, many of the biggest challenges are um, kind of established habits and um, sort of and cultural norms. You know, we we all grow up with the idea that you know that overwork is almost like a sign of virtue, right? It's a it's not just something that will make us make us more money or or but it's something that actually shows that we're good people. And I think reorienting your thinking so that you know you don't so that you don't measure your own worth and your own or the productivity or those of your employees by how many hours you can stay at the office, but rather by how quickly and effectively you can get through your to-do list is that's a really big shift. Um, and then from in the, and then I think that. You know, that the, uh, that learning how to run meetings more effectively, learning how to use technology better, um, discovering that it's okay if you redesign the workday to be a little bit antisocial in those times when you need to really focus and get stuff done. Um, those are all things that take a little bit of adjusting, but people, you know, people tell me it takes generally about two weeks sort of to get into this new rhythm. And then you start to discover that it really, really delivers terrific benefits. And Alex, in terms of KPIs from the companies that you've studied, did their overtime requests or their need to provide people with overtime increase as a result? The answer is not so far as I can tell. I mean, most companies are doing salaried or, you know, have salaried rather than rather than hourly workers. So overtime is less of an issue there. I will say, though, that you know, in the in, in companies that have you know seasonal peaks, or you know that are like organizing conferences or doing something where there are times when it's all hands on deck for you know ten days before a big event, there is a world of difference between going from working a thirty-two hour week to a forty-eight hour week versus going from forty to sixty hours. And so, even in those periods where you do have to do overtime. Um, the fact that you're already more effective and productive to start with means that when you have that big push, everyone everyone is do, is working fewer total hours than they would have previously, um, which means that you're able to get this stuff done, but you're a lot less likely to you know have everybody kind of burn out or sort of crash and burn. And Alex, the predictions for the future of work is that there'll be a rise in the emergence of the gig economy. Of course, that's all about piecework and getting paid for what you do. What type of an impact will that have on this overall concept of the four-day working week? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I tend to feel that um, the gig economy is, you know, is an is an algorithmicized scam in order that's designed to extract as much labor as possible from people very cheaply and to make them feel like they are disposable cogs in a sort of in a gigantic system that doesn't really value them or their labor. Um, so that's the position I'm coming from. I mean, I do think that you know uh, companies that that move to four-day weeks do often convert a number of positions into a fewer full-time jobs. So I think that you know we uh, that we do have you know we do have to figure out how to 
sort of make shorter working hours work for everybody, um, figure out how to do it in ways that increase rather than decrease employment. And I think that you know, eventually we will have to confront the question of how we want to design labor markets and the economy um, to either you know, maximize flexibility in ways that work mainly for sort of companies or whether we want to do it in ways that also offer clearer benefits um, and a living wage to, um, to workers. And Alex, finally, if we look ahead by five years to January 2026, do you think that a four-day working week could be commonplace? And if so, what will drive such a movement? So I think, you know, the movement so far has been driven entirely by, um, it's been almost entirely in the private sector. So it's been, you know, it's been entrepreneurs deciding, you know, I can't work this way any longer. It's actually stupid to keep working hugely long hours, and I can figure out a better way to do it. Um, That is the origin story for most four-day weeks. I think in the next stage, what we're going to see is greater involvement and greater experiments in the public sector. So in Iceland right now, for example, public sector workers are moving to a 32-hour work week. This was a deal that was negotiated last year and has just gone has just been implemented on or in the of January second, um, and so I think that we are going to see more small scale experiments with, let's say, county governments or cities trying out four day work weeks. Um, certainly, there's going to be more interest. There is growing interest on the part of unions, and so and I think that, we, that before too long, we're going to see some place, whether it's you know Iceland or some other country deciding we're going to try a coordinated approach where public sec- where the public sector goes to a four-day week. We're going to try um, we'll give incentives to companies. We'll move schools to a four-day week. And we're going to see if this actually delivers improvements in quality of life and attracts people, you know, attracts people who want a better quality of life, and, but also to do better work. And I think it's just a matter of, you know, I think within five years, there will be several places that offer that as a source of global differentiation and competitive advantage. Well, if you've just tuned in, that was Alex Pang, the author of the book Shorter. And I would like to thank Alex for sharing his insights into the benefits of the Shorter Working Week. Southeast Radio's Business Matters with Carl Fitzpatrick.